Another one of our sponsors I'm excited to tell you about is actually another podcast. It's called People of Product. And it's really about kind of highlighting the way people come together in innovative ways and create all the digital products that seem to be in every part of our lives. And what I think I like the most is that these guys are speaking from experience. You know, we had George Brooks on our show. And besides that, he's like a really genuine human being, just super knowledgeable at creating way more effective teams to get this kind of stuff done. And I really can't recommend it enough. You can find them anywhere that you get your podcasts and I recommend you checking out People of Product. So longtime listeners of the show will probably remember Jay Davis, who's been on a number of times. Well, in addition to being a friend and a consulting client, I'm excited to say now that he's also a sponsor of this show. Last year, when I was spending a lot of time at his company's office, he started a new company called PillowCube, which is this awesome memory foam rectangle pillow. That's tall enough for me to be a side sleeper, but not have to have my head sag down like when I try to fold over my regular pillows. It's really pretty amazing, and for any side sleepers like me, it's great so we don't have to wake up with shoulder pain. On top of that, it's been really fun for me to see him have so much success because it's been selling like crazy. Anyways, if you're a side sleeper, I highly recommend going to pillowcube.com and getting one for yourself. As a pilot, you know, when you, you know, I remember when I had to do night flying, I had to do like 10 hours of night flying when I got my certificate. And the first time we left, we, and we, let, uh, we, we went out and we took off and my flight instructor said, ah, it's a different experience, isn't it? You know, because you don't really see the horizon. It's just everything is dark. And he's, he's looking out the window and he said, you know, Tom, because I was doing this last week with a guy and the engine quit right about here. And we were about 500 feet off the ground in the dark. And I, I looked at him, I said, are you kidding me? I said, in this airplane? He said, yeah, in this airplane. And, and I said, what did you do? Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. This is another installment of our mini-series with my co-host, George Brooks, and uh, we've got a real fun guest on, a guy whose books have really influenced me, and I'm really excited for you guys to learn from Tom Sterner today. Maybe before we start, George, for anybody who hasn't caught one of the other episodes in the series here, can you give everybody just... A quick interview, and uh, and then we'll turn it over to Tom to tell us about his background. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Jess. So I'm also just excited to be here and talk to Tom today as well. Uh, my background is running a small agency based in Kansas City, where we get to help individuals and organizations think about how to innovate and how to create uh, new approaches to how to get work done and how to do work better together. We also host a podcast that I'll plug for, uh, called People of Product as well, which is a crossover with our our ideas. So I'm excited to be here to talk to Tom. Great. So Tom, I'm interested, you know, best-selling author, accomplished musician, these different things. How do you introduce yourself when, when people ask you what you do? Well, you know, I, I think I kind of fell into this. You know, when I was young, I was, I was very undisciplined, and yet I had a lot of energy and was always going in different directions with a lot of excitement. And I would look at a new task, a new skill, and I would start in that direction, and I would burn up the initial enthusiasm fairly quickly. And then I was left with who I was, which was someone who was undisciplined. So I wouldn't follow through. And then that started this cycle of lack of confidence. And I was very aware of this behavior, even at a young age. And by the time I got to be maybe a senior in high school, I realized that I was never really going to reach my potential. And I was not very pleased with who I was from that in that regard. So 
I set out on a quest to figure out why am I like this? How do I change that? And what does that even look like? And I started out in college working with, I, the first thing I started out with was just studying all the different Eastern thought systems because some of them like Zen, Zen was really focusing on being in the present moment, which was something I realized later that I never was. And after that, I got interested in sports psychology and then that moved into neurosciences and all that stuff. And I became, you know, really for decades, I was studying this stuff. And what I saw was by the time I was in my mid-20s, people that I knew that had known me were referring to me as the most disciplined person they knew, which I thought was kind of silly because I didn't see myself. I really hadn't connected the fact that I had changed that much, but it really changed what I could accomplish. But more importantly, it changed my experience of what I was achieving. You know, I think the problem for most people is we get so attached to the goal and when we attach ourselves to the goal, whatever that is, learning a skill or building a business, whatever it is, what we're constantly saying to ourselves unconsciously is, I'm not there. So it's really the wrong focus. It's misusing the goal. So the goal should actually be just basically a point that steers us. And yet our focus should be and our joy should come from the process of achieving it. And that's really a very simple shift that once you make, uh, it changes your whole interpretation of the experience of accomplishing your goals. So I realized that everything in life is a skill. Being able to talk on these podcasts is a skill. You know, being able to run a business is a skill. Absolutely, you know, walking is a skill. Being able to talk is a skill. Everything is a skill. And we start from a position of no skill, and then we move on this line of mastery. And so the question really becomes, and this is, you know, getting back to your initial question, this is how I I kind of introduced myself. My job is to help people to interpret that experience as the place they want to be and to get them to where they can perform at the highest level with the least amount of effort and for their interpretation interpretation of that experience to be one that they look forward to. Tom, so I have a question. What at a base level, you go back to you talking about yourself in high school and you kind of had the self-awareness that you were an undisciplined person. At a base level, what is kind of that, what's that initial spark? What's that first thing that has to happen before anyone can even start to move towards this, even this idea of valuing the process of valuing the being on the journey versus necessarily the destination itself? Well, that's a great question. And we do have the answer to it through sciences now. I mean, it's been around for thousands of years, just not articulated in a Western format, but you have to be aware and have the experience of, I am not my thoughts. I have thoughts. Some thoughts I create, some thoughts I initiate because I have to, I have to pro- solve this problem. But for the most part, we are we are in our thoughts. And why is that? Well, it comes down to a defense mechanism that is as old as, as mankind and humankind is that, you know, the subconscious is always watching what we're doing. And from the time we're children, this is how we learn. And they say that like in the first you know, six to seven years, you're basically functioning in a, almost a state of hypnosis with brainwaves in terms if you were to look at the brainwaves of a child. And they're watching everything that's going on. Their brain is watching. Their subconscious is watching. And these are all labels, conscious, subconscious, unconscious. They're just labels that, dis- that refer to one entity, which is our mind. And so the subconscious mind is is looking at how you handle things, how other people handle things, and it's storing that as programming. And why does it do that? 
Well, it's very efficient for the brain. So for example, if you do something over and over again, when you first start to learn how to do something, it requires all of your cognitive skills. But if the, the subconscious can take something that you repeat, whether it's a physical motion in a golf swing or a reaction to a certain situation, then that can be habitualized. When it becomes habitualized, it basically clears it out of RAM. And now you have access to more cognitive ability for the next task that you're going to try to learn. Now, that's the good side of it. And it's also why, you know, we can do things. We have involuntary reactions to situations. Somebody takes a swing at us or a car pulls out in front of us and we hit the brakes immediately. We don't have to actually go through this process of thinking of, oh, here comes a car. I should do this. It all happens automatically. But that automatically works against us in many instances because there's no conscious choice making in these executions of programs. So neuroscience now knows that we actually spend about 95% of our day in running programs, not actually being a conscious choice maker. That's the reason why I, I did a program, a presentation one time called 5% Thinking, because it, it looks like about 5% of our day, we're actually consciously thinking and using our brain. The rest of the time, we're just firing off programs. Our eyes see something, our ears hear something, and then there's a response to it that happens in a microsecond. And we feel like we're actually making that choice, but we're not. Now, I can give you an example that I had with a client one time where I was having this conversation and he didn't believe it. So in the conversation while we were talking, he said, no, I don't think that. I, he said, I, I think I'm always in control. And, and I said, well, you need to shut up and sit there until I tell you to talk. And as soon as I did that, he went like that. And I said, you see, you're not in control. I said, I, could, I manipulated you just like that. I said, all I mm -hmm. had to do was change my tone of voice. And I said, and what happened when I did that? Your subconscious said, it read the information. It said, what is our response to this tone of voice? It went and got it, played it out on the screen, and you were in the behavior. I said, you didn't have any control over whether you were in that behavior or not. So this is what we need to learn. And going back to your question, you cannot gain control until you get out of the prison. And the prison is becoming aware of what it feels like to be the observer of your thoughts and not in the thought, just experiencing the emotional content of the thought and being manipulated by it. And so how do you do that? I mean, that would be the next question. And um, it has to be through some form of, here's another label. I, I call it thought awareness training. You can call it meditation. It, it doesn't matter. It's, what you need to do is, and it's very difficult in today's world, is you need to sit still. Most people can't sit still. In fact, you know, I, I've worked with everything from young kids to retired CEOs. And I was doing working with some high schoolers one time. And I said, look, this is what we're going to do. We're going to close our eyes for 10 minutes. Or I'm sorry, for two minutes. And I want you to stop thinking. I'm going to put a timer on. So when that timer goes off, you start not thinking. And then in two minutes, it'll go off. And then you can you can wake up from this. So this thing went on for two minutes. And of course, they couldn't do it. And when it came out of it, they were in this state of disbelief because it was the first time they realized that they were telling their mind not to think, but it was saying, no, I'm going to do what I want and doing it without their permission. And I said, so you have to ask yourself, if you're telling your mind, don't think, and it's saying, I don't care what you say, I'm going to think anyway, then who's in control? Because it isn't you. There's this you that's outside of that experience that's saying, I am trying to manipulate my mind and to, and to control it and make it do this. And it's doing something completely 
unrelated to what it's, you know, it goes to ear and it's, that's what happens. You know, it thinks this thought and every thought begats another thought. And then the next thing you know, you've had 20 thoughts and you're in a completely unrelated situation. And this happens to us all day long, unless we start to learn to become aware of what our mind is doing without our permission, which is, you know, one of the things that I work on with people. And, you know, you can start that by you know sitting in a chair the, the uh, Japanese generally tend to meditate on their knees it, it really doesn't matter whatever is more comfortable for you you don't have to sit cross-legged we're not in the Himalayas this is really what we're trying to accomplish here is this experience of what does it feel like when my mind slows down and so you can think of a certain a very simple phrase you know, it could be I am still I am at peace it, it, it's whatever makes you feel good just not some long sentence and then or you could just watch your body breathe now here's where people fall off the wagon is when you tell them to do that they they immediately begin to judge how often they catch their mind running off because they go okay I'm just going to watch my body breathe and so they sit there and they're watching their body breathe and the next thing they know they're at the grocery store in their head and their mind is taken off and it's run away and they just went with it and didn't even realize that they went with it. And now it's down the road and they just caught it. They just woke up and realized my mind is here and it's supposed to be over here. And they think that be, if they do that a lot, it means they're not good at this process. And what I tell them is that's what you're looking for, because every time you wake up and you notice that your mind is not attending to the single task that you're given it, which is the reason why you use that. It's just, you're just looking for a single task. So you have a point of relativity to see where the mind is. And so if you're just paying attention to your breath, or you're just saying this phrase, then you can notice when the mind goes off. And when you wake up in that instant, that's when all the magic happens, because in that microsecond, two things happen. One is you become self-aware you become aware that you are not your thoughts, but the thoughts are happening without your permission. And your willpower strengthens because you draw, you drive your mind back into that process again. So it can be easily said that if you're chasing your mind a lot, you, you can't chase your mind if you don't notice that your mind is, is going off. So the fact that you're noticing it um, and that you're doing it a lot of times, it's like exercise. It just means you're getting a lot of repetitions at this. Mm -hmm. And it's not a bad thing. This is where people get frustrated and they feel like I'm not any good at this. I, I'm going to give up. And you have to tell them that, look, I've been doing this for over 40 years. I have studied all different forms of meditation. I still have days where I sit down and my mind just is, it's everywhere. It just depends on what you're experiencing in your life at that time. There are some times when your mind is relatively placid and there's other times when your mind is very active. It's all normal. Even the best meditators experience it, whatever a, a good meditator is. I mean, you can't be bad at this. It's just a practice that you do. But when you begin to do that, what you'll find is that so it's really you have to experience it. But what will happen and it doesn't take very long within within, I don't know, 10 days, two weeks of doing this for, say, 10 to 15 minutes a day, you will start to notice that your mind is producing thoughts that are making you uncomfortable. This thought, uh, you know, I'm feeling because I tell people, what are you feeling? You know, because the feeling is what's telling you. It's easier to keep track of your feelings than your thoughts because they happen, what, 60,000 thoughts a day, something like that. So you, you can't you can't keep track of the thoughts your mind's producing. But you can pay attention to and notice I'm feeling happy. I'm feeling sad. I'm feeling anxious. When you have that feeling, there is a thought that's predicating that. And so that you that tells you my mind is producing a thought. My subconscious is getting a reaction to this situation that is making me feel this way. 
And now that you are noticing that and you're outside of it, now you have the opportunity to to go in a different way. And that's when we you work on procedures like what you know, what are you going to do when when you notice that? Because these are the three to me, the three things about what I work with with the people. First is you have to notice what your mind's doing without your permission. OK, now you notice that. What are you going to do about that? I mean, it doesn't do, do you any good to notice it if you have no plan in place to change the situation and make it more like what you want. So you have to have a plan. And then the third thing is you have to not judge because that's something that we all do. You can analyze. You have to analyze. But anal- analyzing happens right before judging. Judging comes right after that. And the judging really has no place. You know, I'm good at this. I'm bad at this. I feel bad. I should be better at this. It really has nothing to do with anything other than making the experience unpleasant. So it doesn't make you go any faster. The analysis, and that's another mistake that people make. They have this preconceived idea of I should be this good at this or I should be going at this speed. And when you ask them where they get that from, they really have no answer for you. I had a woman one time that said she had left the corporate world. She was an entrepreneur. She wanted to be a graphic artist. And so in the very first meeting, I said, so what are you struggling with? And she said, well, I've been doing this for six months, graphic artist work. And she said, and I'm not as good as I should be. And I said, okay, well, how good should you be? And there was just dead silence. She said, I I never asked myself that question. And I said, well, you're getting that from this feeling from somewhere. I said, if you could do Six months ago, what you know how to do now, would you have thought you were good? And she said, oh, yeah, yeah, I would. I said, so it's not that you're not getting better. I said, it's that your perception of what good is is changing. You thought you would thought what you could do now was would have been good six months ago. Now that you can do it, you don't feel like it's it's good. And that's really learning to understand how we, our performance grows. When we perform, we're always up against our threshold. In other words, if you look at a, if you look at a musician on the very first day of music, they don't know anything. They don't know where the notes are on the paper. They don't know where the notes are on the keyboard if they're playing piano. They don't know anything. So they're, where are they? They're up against their threshold. So then the, the instructor says, okay, here's a C, here's a D, here's an E. This is what it looks like on the paper. This is where the keys are on the piano. So I want you to now start to play. Where is the musician? They're up against their threshold. Now jump ahead five years. Now they're playing a Mozart piece or, or something else. Where are they? They're not trying to figure out where the, pa- where the notes are on the paper, but it's difficult because it's, it's their threshold. So the feeling inside of them, what they are experiencing inside is the same as it was on the first day of music lessons. So they could misinterpret that as I'm not getting any better. Actually, they're way better than they were. It's just that they're always up against their threshold. Hmm. You know, Tom, I feel like, well, for people who aren't familiar with the book, can you can you give a little bit of background on just how successful your your book, The Practicing Mind, has been and, and how well received? And then I'd love to hear for people to hear just a little bit of your story on how bringing this to your mastery of piano tuning, for instance, what a little more about that story, if that's OK. Sure. Well, the, I wrote the book. Initially, it was going to be for I saw in my piano technical business, which I had for almost 30 years. And in that business, I had I gotten to the top of the heat, to be quite frank. I was working at concerts through several states. I was doing outdoor rock concerts. I mean, I was in a very enviable position because I would be at some big rock concert up on stage working on keyboards and my friends would be out there on the field. And oh my God, you're standing right next to, you know, I would be in the dressing rooms, in the trailers of these people. I would be, you know, having coffee with them. I mean, it was just part of the job. And I was treated very high because they had a lot of respect for what I had to do for them. So it was very demanding. And the other thing about piano technology is there's 88 notes. 
there's at least 88 of everything on a piano. So whatever you're going to do, you're going to do a lot of times. And if you're going to tune a piano, there's maybe 230 strings and you're going to have to touch every one of those strings at least once in a piano tuning. So you really are put in this situation where you're working in solitude and you're working in a highly repetitive and monotonous environment. And so that was kind of the beginning of this was how do I deal with this and keep my level of my quality level up without just getting crazy? The other thing was when I started to have the idea for the practicing mind, I had learned, I'd gone through my own tra- transformation and I had learned to love practicing. I hated practicing when I was a kid. I, you know, I, I absolutely despised it. I quit piano, you know, and And I had completely changed that part of my personality to where I loved building any skill that I could in any challenge, any task. I just loved it. And I became stress free and completely involved in the process of the skill and not attached to the product of of owning the skill. And so because of that, I had this idea. I was seeing a lot of adults that were trying to learn a musical instrument later in their life. And they would they, they had the money. They, they'd buy some big, expensive grand piano thinking they were going to sit down and practice it. And, you know, it would take about two months and they weren't practicing anymore. And the piano was just sitting there gathering dust. So I thought I need to write something to help these people to kind of share my story. And then when I started writing it, I realized that, well, wait a minute, this isn't this is just kind of how I live. This isn't it isn't just about music. So I self-published the book at first and I sold, I had, as I said, a very successful six-figure business. I sold it all, walked away from sold the clients. I had two business properties, $100,000 in tooling. I just, I sold it all, all in about a week and walked away from it. Everybody thought I was having a midlife crisis and I was nuts. And then I started to sell, I wrote the book. And when I first launched the book, I mean, in my head, I was so, so naive. I'm thinking, well, let me see that, you know, there's just tens of millions of people, hundreds of millions on the internet. And I get this website and I put this book out there. How, you know, I just sit back and make money. How hard can it be? You know, and when I was making about 30 bucks a week, I knew I was in trouble. And now I'm just, I was cash rich because I had sold everything, but I'm just hemorrhaging money. And, and I actually ended, at one point had to go back out and work. And I went out and worked as a roadie in concerts. And you talk about degrading because now I was working right next to the guys that I was at the top of the food chain and they were at the bottom and they just couldn't wait for me to be one of them. You know, I mean, I took a lot of heat, you know, and guys that wanted to give me a hard time, but never could. Now they could, you know, and so but I had to keep telling myself, look, this is going to pan out. This is going to pan out. And so then what happened was the book hit number one on Amazon twice in stress management. And then everything just started to take off. I couldn't get an, an agent. They wouldn't talk to me. And then I got called by an agent who got me the job. And, you know, just a very uh, quick side note on that that I think is really fascinating is that this agent was out in California. I'm in Delaware. And when I was riding around all the time in in, in the service business, I used to listen to uh, NPR and to some of the the interviews with musicians and authors and everything. And there was one particular show, Marty Marty Moscowane's Radio Times. And I used to listen to that all the time. And so one day after I'd sold on trying to make this book go someplace and it's not, I was taking a walk and I thought, you know, if I could get on to her show, I would feel like I really made it. That would be my, that would be my, you know, my sign that I had actually arrived. 
So this about a year later, I got called by this agent out in California. And she said, look, I read your book. Looks like it's self-published. I can get you a contract. You know, would you let me take it on? I said, yeah. So she got me the contract with New World Library and, you know, which is Eckhart Tolle's Power Now and a whole bunch of people. And so about six months after they released the book, she called me up and she said, how's everything going? And I said, you know, it's going real good. And I told her and she said, you know, you need to be on Marty Moskowin's show. And she's a friend of mine. I used to produce her show. So I'm going to call on a chip and make a phone call. And within 30 minutes, I, I, I had an invitation to be on the show the following week. So I was just kind of a, you know, synchronistic, you know, thing. But anyway, going back to the, the thing, this is how things got started with me. And, and then after that, it just kept going to, you know, to where the request to do talks. And, and then I wrote, um, fully engaged and I'm working on the third of the final trilogy, you know, right now. So, so yeah, does that answer your question? Yeah, I, I've got way more, but I want to know what questions George has. You know, honestly, I love kind of going anytime I talk to an author, I kind of want to ask you how you think about practicing your own advice. So when you think about what's, what's your threshold right now? What are some of the things that you're pushing yourself up against? What are the things that you're practicing or maybe even just the What's the new mundane for you? I'm curious as to what that looks like because that makes it really practical then for someone saying, oh, yeah, I, mine is similar or mine is, I could see where it could become that. Well, you know, one of my clients asked me, what is it like to go through the day in your head? And, and I said, I'll tell you that as soon as you describe the color blue. And, and he just looked at me and he goes, all right, I get it. And I said, I said, but seriously, I, I the thing that really makes me feel good about what I do is that I use this stuff every day in every way. For example, I just lost my father. He passed away at the end of December. And I was, he lived 100 miles away. And I had to put a lot of my business on hold, which it didn't want to be in that position because things were going, you know, a lot of, there was a lot of responsibility. And I had to, I was my dad's nurse, you know, for, for a lot of time. Now, my was sharing that that with my sister and brother-in-law and my other sister. But there was a time we just got all got so exhausted that we had to take, we had to go home and take shifts. So I was there for almost two weeks completely by myself and he needed round the clock care. And in that time, I was able to, you know, there's a lot of emotional content in a situation like that. And I was able to recognize that I am not this emotion. This emotion is a response. And I can, I needed to be what he needed me to be in that moment. And I was able to say, you know, I can get emotional, but this isn't the time for it. It's going to have to wait. I need to be the support for him. I need to say what he needs to hear. I need to comfort him. And I need to get by with two or three hours of sleep in 24 hours. And I did that for days. And I didn't feel all beat up. I didn't, you know, I felt in control. And, you know, and this is something I can also say that as a pilot, you know, when you, you know, I remember when I had to do night flying, I had to do like 10 hours of night flying when I got my certificate. And the first time we left, we, and we let, we went out and we took off and my flight instructor said, ah, oh, it's a different experience, isn't it? You know, because you don't really see the horizon. It's just, everything is dark. And he's, he's looking out the window and he said, you know, Tom, he goes, I was doing this last week with a guy and the engine quit right about here. And we were about 500 feet off the ground in the dark. And I, I looked at him. I said, are you kidding me? I said, in this airplane? He said, yeah, in this airplane. And, and I said, what did you do? And he said, well, he said, I had a procedure. He goes that I had rehearsed in my head and I dropped into that procedure. And he said, I told him, check the fuel gauge. He said, I hit, he checked electrical system, fuel pump, all this stuff. 
the short of it is he solved the problem in less than about 15 seconds. And the engine started and they flew off and it was a non-event. And I said, well, what was that experience like? He said, well, it was a little bit of an adrenaline rush. He said, but at the same time, he said, I wasn't in a panic because I knew what I was going to do. And so I tell people, because I ask myself this, if I am noticing that I'm having a feeling that is uncomfortable or sad or um, anxious or whatever, I ask myself, what is that telling me? When you notice you're struggling, it's telling you you're up against your threshold. So I ask myself, if I could do anything I wanted, if I could be anything I wanted in this moment, what is it? Because if I don't know what that is, then I can't try to accomplish it. So I have to know what that is. And and hopefully you would know that before you get in the situation. And I have that with clients. You know, they'll say, you know, well, I'm in, you know, I'm in counseling, couples counseling, and my my spouse really intimidates me and, you know, makes me feel bad about myself. And I would, in a situation like that, I would say, okay, well, you, so that's a given, you know, at your next meeting, that's what's going to happen. So I want you to ask yourself, if I can handle that any way I want, what would that be? And, you know, she said, I I don't know. I said, well, we got to figure that out. I said, because you have no target. If you have Mm -hmm. a target, you'll find that when you get into those situations, it's really, especially if you have a procedure, like what I'll call, like, say, a rescue mantra, you know, like mine is, this is when the fun starts. So, you know, if I've got a stressful situation and I start into that and all, and I know it's going to be anxious, let's just say it's a meeting with a specific person or something. When that person walks in the room and I can feel that first pang happen in here, I go, oh, this is when the fun starts. And that pulls me out of that moment. It stops that flow and the pull towards the response that I have practiced over and over and over again. That's why it's so I'm so good at it. I'm, that's why you're so good at getting nervous and anxious and all, because you've practiced that since you were a child. And so now we got to change that, you know, like you're very, you've mastered it. So now we have to work at mastering a different response to that situation. And you, it's so much easier if you're able to say, this is what I want to do in that situation. If you're very clear on that, this is what I want to do in that situation. So then now you have a target and referencing that target in that moment gives, it helps to stop the momentum of the old habit. And, and it, and it works, you know, it works very well. So that's, you know, that's the kind of thing that I do when I'm in a situation I practice this stuff every day because it works. I, I, I have to, it makes me think of, I haven't done it in a while, especially given COVID the year of COVID, but I, I used to do mud runs or obstacle runs or, or even just five K's and 10 K's, things like that. And I, when I would go just on my training to do a run, I was fine. Or when I, even when I was lifting weights, I was fine, but I would get to the starting line and I would literally like hyperventilate. I would just be freaking myself out. And so I, I started a practice of saying, I'm just going for a run. I'm just, this is just a practice run. And I would literally just say that to myself a few times over. And then that first mile was always just so much smoother because it was just putting myself back in the feeling, back in that practice, kind of like your pilot um, story where my dad was a nuclear engineer. And so he would talk about they would they would run through every scenario that would happen if there was a meltdown or if there was, you know, a, a high risk moment. And they knew that as soon as that cue happens, they go, cool, we've got a checklist. And we go immediately to that mundane, like simple thing of going check, 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 check. We know what to do. We know where the problem is. We know how to address it. I mean, you, you can hear the, 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 the stories of the, the, the space back in the 60s when the space program and how they addressed these massively complex problems by just going, 
yeah, well, I just, we have to go through our checklist and we know how to, to process that by going back to that simple, simple task. So for me, it was just, I'm just going for a run. It's no big deal. Um, and you know, there's scientific, there's been studies that were done actually back in the eighties with Olympic athletes where they would have them practice their, what, what you're saying, like sit in a chair and, and practice. Like if, if it was for that particular circumstance, it would be, I would say, I want you to sit in the chair every evening and I want you to go through seeing yourself walk up to the to starting line and seeing that and telling yourself it's just your run. Now, what's interesting about that is that what they discovered, because they, they do brain scans, is that the brain doesn't differentiate between when you're physically doing it and when you're just thinking it. And some of the really big golfers like Phil Mickelson used to, I, he may still do it, but he would sit in a chair and play a whole course in his head before he actually competed with it. And it takes a certain amount of discipline, but it's, but like I said, it's one of the things that, you know, as again, you can rehearse this stuff. Your brain just looks at it as you're actually, you're actually doing it. And again, we go back to what we start, where we started with, you can't do any of this stuff if you can't separate yourself from the emotional response that's happening, because that emotional response is one that, I, as I said, that you have repeated over and over again. That's why it flows so effortlessly, because you're really good at it. So when you make a decision that I want a different, I want my interpretation, interpretation creates your experience. I want a different interpretation of this situation. And it's so interesting how just changing that interpretation changes your experience. So for example, I had a, a young client who was telling me they wanted to, they wanted to get an interview for this company. And, and he said, I know somebody in the company, but I, I just don't, I really am nervous. I, I feel like I'm taking advantage of him if I ask him to get me an interview. And I said, that's your interpretation. And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, here's my interpretation because this kid is brilliant. I said, you're brilliant and you bring problem solving and strategy skills to that corporation that they don't have access to. And they never will have access to them if they don't sit down and talk with you. So you're looking at it as that guy's doing you a favor. I'm looking at it as you're doing them a favor by having the conversation. If you have the conversation, if they don't want you, they can say no. I said, but they're not even having that opportunity. And he said, I never thought it. He had this big smile on his face. He said, I never thought of it like that. He goes, you know, I don't, I don't mind asking the guy now. I said, well, see, all we did, it's the same circumstance. The circumstance is not this or that. It's just your interpretation of what the circumstance is. I, I think about this, you know, I would love to get your advice. So let me tell you a little bit about what I think my threshold is and, and see based on all your work, what, what you would recommend next. So I became a millionaire two different times in my 20s and lost it all due to speculation. Lost my religion and speculation, became like compound interest devotee, joined the religion of Warren Buffett, compound interest, margin of safety investing, right? So I've spent 10 years reading six or 7,000 pages of Warren Buffett books, taking courses, flying to Omaha, going to his annual shareholder meeting, watching literally hundreds of YouTube videos of his interviews and stuff. And I've spent this painful decade not being retired when I could have been, right? Looking at every investment and trying to put it through the Warren Buffett lens or like some of his followers like Bruce Flatt, who, you know, has $500 billion Brookfield and he applies it to real estate investing and stuff, right? And so I, I think about this net, what I feel like the next level is Warren Buffett says, it's not that hard to become wealthy if you have eight hours a day to read and think. And he says like his typical day is, is reading and thinking and maybe a few phone calls. And so 
I've tried to follow the 80-20 principle and I hired a CEO for this fund and I'm just the chairman. I don't have to do anything except make sure that we have staff that makes everything done so I can have this time. And so now I look at like, I need to restrain myself from getting involved in the business and, and do what he says, which is have that time to read and think. And, and then I also need to consider like exactly what I should be reading to make sure that I'm having the right thoughts. And so I'm just wondering and any thoughts about mastery and, and your work that would maybe apply as I look at this kind of what I feel like is the next level. Well, one thing that's very clear is that you are, you're very attached to an outcome, which tends to make you impatient and make all of us makes us impatient. And also, you know, when you attach yourself to an outcome, what you're always saying is I'm not there. And there's this thing I have to go through. And one of the things that I tell people is you, you may not have all the information you need initially to make the right decision that is going to take you where you are. So you're in this stage right now of gathering data. And that's really what you're doing is you're going, should I do this? Should I do that? And you know, what doesn't work. Like that's, it's, they're not mistakes. A mistake is just another word for gathering information. You know, like, I mean, it's just like, you know, what doesn't work, you know, we're taught to feel bad because we made mistakes, but you can't learn anything without making mistakes. So to me, you're in this stage of gathering the data. I think what's important here is to, because obviously I can't say, we'll do this as this and it'll all happen. I think what I'd be more, more interested in is for you to be enjoying the process of figuring it out. There's two different places, you know, like, and what happens is, is that we, we make goals without accurate data. I mean, I did that. I, you know, when I started the book, I just, as I said earlier, oh, I'm going to do this, that, and this, and I'll sit back and I'll just watch the, the book sales. And that didn't happen. And that was because it wasn't because I did a bad job. It was because I had this concept in my head that was completely erroneous because I had didn't have enough data to make a, an intelligent decision. If I was to do that over now, knowing what I know, obviously I would feel differently and my interpretation and my experience in that would be completely different. So to me, I think that, you know, one of the things is you have to let go of in order when you sit down and you read and you take your day off, you're polluting that experience because you're thinking about the other stuff. If that makes sense to you. It's like my daughter one time called me and she said she was a school teacher and she said she was meeting some girlfriends for happy hour. They're from school. And then she launched into all this stuff she had to do on the weekend for school. And I said, look, I said, you're polluting your happy hour with you're not fully present there. I said, like, so I said, let's just solve the problem. I said, how much time is it going to take you to do the work you have to do? And she said, four hours. I said, okay, do you want to do that Saturday or Sunday? She said, I prefer Sunday. I said, morning or afternoon? She said, morning. I said, okay, done. Now you don't talk about, you're not there. So you don't put your mind there. But what it sounds to me like um, just in this short here is that your mind is even when you're you're doing what quote what Warren Buffett is saying to do you're not fully present you're not fully engaged in that process because you're thinking about this over here so you're not actually even getting out of this situation what you're doing i, I had a psychiatrist who did, was doing the same thing he told me he had so much paperwork to do and it was really a problem because he said he wanted to spend more time with the patients and he said so he started talking about this and he said you know sometimes I just, I have to make a decision. And he said, I end up spending less time with the patient than I want because I have to do all this paperwork. He said, but I, occasionally I will give myself permission to spend an extra 10 minutes with the patient. 
He said, but then I'm thinking about how I'm going to have to pay for this. You know, I said, so you're right. So when you spent, you give yourself permission to be here, you're not fully here. You're polluting that time with your mind being over here and thinking about, well, this is going to cause this. I said, and I said, you also have to look at what's the reality of the situation. If you can't do 40 hours of work in 20, 20 hours. And that's something that is a real problem for all of us today because we don't put any kind of limit. We just think, I'll just do more. I'll just do more. And, and there's only so much that we can effectively do. So to me, it really comes down to more in, in this conversation is what are you experiencing internally? Because what you're experiencing is are these interpretations and these thoughts that you've had over and over again. That's why the experience, it's not working. That system isn't working. So I would ask you, going back to what I said a few minutes ago, if you could experience your time reading and this whole growth thing, because it's a growth thing that you're going through. You're like, you're saying, well, I don't know what, I have to make sure I read the right thing. I have to make sure. Okay. If you could experience that any way you want, what would that experience look like? If you don't know that, you can't figure it out when you're in the throes of the situation. Just like when you fly an airplane, you're taught if the engine quits, here's the checklist. This is what you do. One, two, three, four, five. If you don't know, if you don't have that checklist and you don't know it, you're not going to figure it out when the engine quits because now you're just dealing with too many emotional components of it. And what's going to happen is all these responses that you have installed on the hard drive are going to start coming off and you're going to be you're going to be engrossed in those 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 thought processes and those emotions and the emotional content of that. And so you're not going to have the opportunity to say, this isn't working. I need to go in this direction. So that to me, to, the bigger question to me right here is when I'm really prattling is that is your experience. You have to go through this experience of learning. What is the best way to do this? You've had two, as you said, two times, you know, what doesn't work. So now you're forging another path and you're figuring out the information to, to deal with that in a successful way. And you need to be completely fully present in that and to enjoy that process of achieving that goal as opposed, it's almost like you're worried and, and that's where your attention is, that you're going to misstep and then then you're going to be right back where you were before. And that's, that's stealing cognitive decision-making ability that you could be putting into gathering information and processing it. Does that make any sense? Well, it's really helpful because when I call, like, I think for me, I have this anxiety. Maybe I'm missing a step. You know, maybe I maybe I don't actually understand the formula. And the thing is, like, if I calm down and think about it, I actually do have confidence about that. But it would probably be helpful for me to write it down. And, Absolutely. like, you know, today, today I've got a meeting, you know, I'm meeting with some investors tonight. Guy just, you know, guy sold this company for tens of millions of dollars. And and I'm going to go meet with him and pitch the investment. And separately, I was just dealing with text messages, text messages of a guy who's got some assisted living facilities that look like they pay a really high rate of return and that that I just need to probably do divide and conquer and be completely present where I'm at. And then like your graphic designer, like, def, you know, define what success looks like, define these things. If I just defined the Warren Buffett method myself and calmly, like, I remember you talking about tuning pianos and how by being present, instead of trying to rush, you actually got done faster. Yes. yes. I, I really feel like I, I do have confidence that I understand the Warren Buffett principles and how they've been applied to commercial real estate, like how Brookfield does it. And I think maybe what I'm getting from this is if I had those written down and I had my phone turned off and my email turned off and everything, and I look at, say, these assisted living facilities, and I just slowly match it up against 
all of the elements that I know Bruce Ladd or Warren Buffett would ask if he was here. I can trust in that process. I don't need to have anxiety about a missing step. Well, and if you look at that, just to give an analogy, you know, I, I in Fully Engaged, I talked about this girl golfer that I worked with, and she was an extremely good golfer and had broken a bunch of state records. But every now and then she would just lose her timing or something and start to play poorly. And when that happened, she would implode. And so she came to me and she said, you know, would you work with me? Because when I'm good, I'm really good. And when I'm bad, I'm really bad. And, and so her whole goal was a year away. There was a tournament that she wanted to play in that was a stepping stone as an amateur. She could get if she if she either won the tournament or was in the top three, she could get an invitation to play in a major tournament as an amateur. So, you know, we started talking and we met for coffee and all this stuff. And I followed her around on some of her tournaments and she was great. I mean, she played well. I would give her some course management skills, but we really talked about how to handle her mind to be aware of her thoughts, et cetera. The stuff that we're talking about here. So then the day of the, the tournament comes finally. And normally they wouldn't allow you to have a caddy. The kids, they had to carry their own bag. But for whatever reason, this tournament allowed them to have a caddy. So she asked me if I would carry the bag for her. And I think she thought it would be a big advantage. So I told her I would. And I came to the, the tournament. And when I pulled up and saw her hitting balls on the range, I could see immediately that she was so attached to playing well or not playing bad that she had forfeited all of the natural athleticism that she'd already proven to herself and many others that she had. So as we, and I thought to myself, you know, if I talk to her, then she's going to start this self-talk inside. And I want to see, this might just kind of blow off after a couple couple swings on the course. Well, it didn't. She blew the first ball into the trees and it, it, it just kept getting worse. And and then I thought, well, do I step in and say something or do I let her solve this herself? After all, this is what she paid for. And so I thought, well, I'll just let her go for a couple of holes. And she just kept getting worse. And I could tell that now she was just emotionally distraught, you know, and, and I felt I had to step in because I felt like if I hadn't been there, she would have probably blown off steam with a lot of bad language and she didn't want to do that in front of me. So that was just compounding things. So I said to her, as we're chasing down one of her errant shots, I said, I got to ask you something like, why did you ask me to work with you? And she said, I asked you to work with me so that I could overcome this situation. And I said, fair enough. I said, so how do you think you do it? And she said, I don't know. She said, I've tried everything I know. I can't find my swing. Nothing feels right. She said, I'm, I just can't play. And I said, I think you're missing the intent of my question. He said, in order to figure this out, you have to be in the situation. I said, if you want to learn how to play in the rain, when it rains, you got to get out on the course. I said, if you want to be good in the wind, I said, when it's windy, that's when you need to go out and play. We can talk all you want in Starbucks and everything else. I said, but if you want to learn how to overcome this, you have to be in the situation where everything has failed. And I said, you know, you wanted to know, how do I turn things around when all the cliches, I'm leaking oil, I'm not running on all cylinders, every, you know, all the stuff that they say. I said, you're there, girl. I said, you stink. And I said, but you've proven that you're way better than this. This isn't who you are. I said, so... I think the problem here is you're so attached to the outcome of this tournament in terms of getting this invitation. I said, let me tell you something. This is a one-day tournament. It's not going to determine whether you become a professional golfer. It's not going to determine whether you get a college scholarship. It's just a one-day tournament. 
I said, but what it does is it's giving you everything you wanted, the opportunity to turn this around. It's put you in this situation. I said, so stop looking at this as this failure and start looking at it as we've played six holes. You got 12 holes left to figure out how to turn it around. Use the stuff we've talked about. See what you can come up with. It took her like a hole and a half. As soon as she let go of my goal is to do really great, and she just started to be in the present, and she released herself from these all these limits and and the the, the things that she felt like she had to do, everything just fell into place. And I, I'm telling you that story because that's what I'm hearing, you know, from you is you're, there's so much thinking going on. How do I not make a mistake? Forget about it. This is not, you're a young man. This is not going to change. You know, if you're going to something, there's going to be an outcome to what you're doing. It's going to either be what you want. It's going to be not what you want or somewhere in between. But there's no way that you're going to go through that without learning nothing because you're too intelligent for that. And you've already had experience in it. So you need to step back and just say, I'm going to enjoy it. Enjoy the opportunity that you're having right now. You're in this situation. And that's why you're saying, I don't want to miss a step. Forget about that. Miss the step. You'll learn and you'll probably catch it quick. But right now you're so, you're all this cognitive decision-making ability you don't have access to because you're too concerned about, I got to make, this has to be successful. And that's where we all get that, you know, and like I said, just be grateful that you're being presented with this opportunity because I'm, I'm back to if you could be if you could handle this, if you could master this, if you could be a master of this and this situation was so easy, what would you do? Like and just start asking yourself that question and just be aware of I, I'm going to do this and then watch it. Watch it unfold. Now, mm, I like this that I got from that, but I don't like that. So I'm going to refine it with another repetition of, of going through this. And and that's what practice is. You know, practice, people say, well, what is the practicing mind? What is that state of mind? The practicing mind to me if you, is learning to enjoy the process of accomplishing anything instead of being so attached to the moment you achieve it. I can take a piece of chalk and draw, and draw a line on the street and say, okay, there's the finish line. Go ahead and step over it. It means nothing. It means absolutely nothing. Why does it feel great when you step over the finish line at the end of the race? It's because of everything you had to do to get to that point. This is I've talked to kids and said, what do you do with a video game when you master it? They go, I get rid of it. I said, that's right. Why do you do that? Because you want it to be right at that place where you can almost do it. And sometimes you can do it, but you can't do it all the time because as soon as you can do it all the time, you don't want to do it anymore. There's no challenge there. And we <laughs> fight with this feeling all the time. Every time we feel like we're that feeling of struggle is, as I said, it's just the universe's way of saying, hey, you're in the process of mastering this. You haven't mastered it yet, but you're in the process of mastering it. That's why you're feeling that. If you had mastered it, you don't think about walking across the room. You just get up and walk across the room. But I can tell you, I got a one-year-old grandson, and he in there. I mean, he's trying to walk and it's a struggle, you know, so but there's going to come a time where he doesn't think about that anymore because he's mastered it. So the things we're good at, the things we've mastered, we don't pay any attention to because they're so effortless. We only pay attention to the things that push back and we interpret that as being bad. And it isn't. It's just data. It's all it is. It's just data saying you're in the process of figuring this out and mastering this particular situation. So just be glad you're in the situation. Otherwise, you wouldn't have the opportunity to figure it out. I love it. Well, well listen, this is this has been great. Everybody needs to go to TomSterner.com, get the books, check out your courses and everything else there. 
And then Tom, thanks for coming on the show. Oh, I loved it. I loved it. Thank you so much. It was really great getting to know both of you. Thanks, Tom. Okay. Thanks, everyone.